The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. In this day and age, almost anyone can be found online because your private information is no longer private. In today's world, the risk of being tracked online is a significant concern. Anyone, like a coworker, a new online date, or even a stranger can pose a threat if they gain access to your personal information. Your personal information is already exposed whether you like it or not. In fact, the average person, including you, will have over 2,400 pieces of personal information exposed online over the next two years. Your online reputation is everything, and 40% of information data brokers have on people is inaccurate. This could mean lost job opportunities, higher insurance premiums, or even wrongful arrest. And after hearing our podcast, we all know this could lead to something much darker. And everyone knows that is not a risk you should be willing to take. But did you know there is a legit way to make your personal data yours again? Spooner for Gothic has partnered with number one personal data removal service, Delete Me. Since 2011, Delete Me has made it quick, easy, and safe for listeners like you to remove your personal data online. But how does Delete Me work? Well, it's quick and easy. You just sign up at join.com deleteme.com slash spoon river and submit your personal information for removal from search engines. Next, the removal process begins as DeleteMe experts find and remove your personal information, and you will then receive a detailed DeleteMe report within seven days. And that's not it. DeleteMe experts will continue to scan and delete any detected personal information every three months throughout the year. Since 2011, DeleteMe has saved users over 54 years. That's 20,000 hours of required effort to remove personal information from online sources. DeleteMe has developed the most comprehensive, thorough, and transparent information 
information removal product on the market. And that is why PCMag.com named Delete Me excellent, the most outstanding product in its category. With an average rating of 4.7 out of 5 stars, Delete Me has over 800 plus reviews and an A plus rating by the Better Business Bureau. So know that you can trust this industry leader in online personal data removal. Also, the Delete Me team is always there to help you and prides itself on its outstanding customer service and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. The Delete Me team is not happy if you're not happy. Your privacy is their business. So join Delete Me now, risk-free, at joindeleteme.com slash Spoon River because no one wants to be a victim or a suspect. So get protected before it's too late. And next time that case hits too close to home, you will not find yourself asking that strange person on the other end of the line, how did you find my number? Again, that's joindeleteme.com slash Spoon River. Hey, okay. Some of the questions you're asking me last night, like about uh, Mike Elam and Day Bears and stuff. Yeah. Um, I was kind. Of, I kept thinking about that, thinking about that. So I kind of I started texting some of the guys, saying, "Hey, you know, I go, I did this interview thing, and here's some of the questions they asked. I don't know what all detail information you want. Just talking to, you know, Ryan and Gerald and them guys." you know, texting last night and today, they kind of, well, I should say they even said they're like, well, they go really, they go the city and the chief kind of pretty much kept that really hush, hush, but rumors were getting out. So I didn't know if, I didn't know if you wanted like, you know, the rumors going around the station or if that's even of interest. You want to know the like rumors, because I do See, I remember once them having a departmental meeting, and I don't think I realized at the time. Um, then I kind of start thinking of the dates and the time frame, and but like I remember once at a departmental meeting, and the chief was talking about some kind of investigation, and in there, somebody, somebody on the department had hired like a civil thing, you know, I don't know if it was divorce or a civil suit or what that had nothing to do with their police job, but they had hired like a local attorney that was related to, I think it was one of their brother-in-laws, like one of the sister's husband, who's a local attorney. And like, Chief Elam? uh, Yeah, like Chief Elam, his Mm -hmm. wife and Dave Ayers' wife were sisters. Well, there was like four or five sisters in that family. Well, somebody had hired this local attorney who was a brother-in-law to Mike Elam, the chief. And in there, in the meeting, I remember a couple of people like saying, well, what, are you telling people what's going on here? Are you telling people, to, you know, stabbing the chief in the back? And I remember thinking like, excuse my language, but I was kind of like, what the fuck are they all throwing a fit about the dude? You know, it doesn't have anything to do with work. And I just remember kind of tuning it out. But now after talking to Ryan and a couple of other guys, what they said, what their recollection of it is, and they said, again, it was like rumors, was that 
from the time Bull was arrested to the time his trial, you know, evidence was being sent to the lab and being analyzed and sent back. Well, there was something that was recovered from around the neck of one of the victims. I don't know if it was a cloth, what it was, but it was something that was some kind of material that was recovered around the neck of one of the victims. Well, most of it was like destroyed by the lab when they were analyzing it, trying to identify it. And the threads or pieces of it that was sent back to the police department, well, by the time the trial came up, that was missing from the evidence locker. And when they were doing an audit of the evidence locker, it was found that that, what they were saying was that they, you know, evidence periodically after the cases are, you know, uh, have gone through all their appeals and everything or going through their years of appeals. Well, yeah. the city has like storage sheds and old evidence that they have to keep by law or by court order. It goes out there because, you know, the evidence vault can only hold so much. So it's kept. Well, they did an audit of all the evidence in the storage shed and found that some these threads or what was remaining of this small piece of evidence was missing. Well, ended up they had to file the paperwork under discovery to the, you know, Bull's attorney saying that, hey, you know, because they, you know, the defense under discovery has can have access to all the evidence, the reports and everything, and they can even take some of the evidence and have it analyzed by their own their own labs to try to see if it matches up with what the state lab, the crime lab saying. Mm-hmm. Well, from what they were saying, though, they were under the impression that when they notified the defense that, hey, we can't, you know, this is missing and here's what's going on or in our audit, here's what happened when we were cleaning it out. Some of the evidence that under court order or under the law we could dispose of, it inadvertently was disposed of. And from what Ryan was saying, he was under the impression that during, before the trial started, like when they were having all the motions and hearings, that that was argued before a judge. And the defense and the judge, they all ruled that, okay, they'll accept the state crime labs, you know, what their analysis of this was. And that this was even before the jury trial started, one of those kind of hearings. Well, then I guess for whatever reason, then they said, then later on after Bull was convicted and everything, some, that uh, you mentioned about some kind of the letter or something like that. I remember you mentioned about it and I remember thinking, oh yeah, I remember that being kind of a hoopla kind of thing. But I guess they were saying that either it came out in that or something else came up. But years later, the FBI was doing some type of investigation either into Elam or the police department or the city, but it had something to do with like the city. And for whatever reason, they came and interviewed Dave Ayers and out off while he was off duty. And after they interviewed him, they, he was supposedly allegedly told, okay, well, while we're doing this investigation, you can't talk about that. We interviewed you about this to anybody. So Dave, of course, they, because a lot of people don't realize the FBI has a lot, a lot of authority and leeway. So even if you don't commit a crime, you haven't done anything, if the FBI can show that you lied, they can charge you. 
if they show that you kept information from you, they can charge you with obstruction. Or if they tell you, hey, you know, we're doing an investigation in something, this is confidential, you can't talk about it, and then you talk about it to the news media or to your family, they can come back and charge you on a federal crime. So, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. But uh, I guess, though, that somewhere during this period of time, during this investigation, the city found out that Dave had been interviewed about it prior in the past sometime, and the city, I guess, went after Dave because of that, because he didn't tell them that the FBI was doing this investigation. And then I get, and I do know, though, um, like a couple of guys said, they said, we know for a fact that the city did hire some lawyer, not in this area, it was like outside of the area to represent Elam and the city. So that's why we were thinking when we were talking, well, then it had to do with something with the police department or the Elam. But they said because if you – because they remembered at the time the city council in executive session had to vote Mm -hmm. on it. And the guys – which I don't remember this. The guys were saying that a couple of council members that they knew were, like, friends with on the city council that they were talking about – like within a few weeks or so that in executive session, the council voted to pay for some law firm to represent the city and Mike Elam and mm-hmm. the, with the feds. So that's, and I know though, again, I mean, Elam, Elam ended up, he retired and I remember him retiring. I mean, I don't remember him like, you know, I don't remember anything. It was like one of those things of, well, you know, because I know like when Don Edwards, not the mayor and no relation to the old mayor, Don Edwards, we had a police officer named Don Edwards who, you know, became a lieutenant and then became the chief after Elam. And um, I remember like when he, when they told him, they told him, hey, come May, we're not renewing your, you know, you're not being reappointed as a chief of police, you're done. You know, so pack your, you know, pack up your office and your desk, and in two months, you're done. So he retired. Okay. Yeah. And that had to do with, uh, because he was the chief when I had my complaint, you know, with the city and ended up hiring an attorney. And then we had a little girl that got murdered by her uncle, and um, which happened like months after I filed my complaint. But he had some kind of like Mason or Scottish Rite meeting in Springfield. And when the dispatch was, you know, calling out the detectives and everything for the little girl getting murdered, they called, notified him. And he just told dispatch, okay, keep me updated. Well, then he, that morning, he went to Springfield for his Mason or Scottish Rite meeting. And all the news media was showing up. They made arrest on the mur- the little girl getting murdered. Well, then the mayor showed up at the time and was like, well, where the hell's your chief of police? All the media is here wanting to know what's going on. And they keep asking me. And that's why we have a chief of police to deal with this. And the lieutenant was like, well, he went to a Mason meeting in Springfield. And the mayor flipped, which he should have been, should have been upset. So it was a combination of things that they were like, yeah, no, you're, you know, come May 1st, I'm not reappointing as chief, you're done. So I know nothing, I don't remember anything like that happening with 
deal them back then. But then again, I do know, like talking to the guys, they were kind of like, well, you know, and, the, you know, and they were talking about, well, you don't remember, you know, because they brought up about that departmental meeting. They go, you don't remember that meeting where there was like a yelling match and they were uh, accusing Greg because he hired an attorney. I go, I do remember that meeting where they were all yelling because something about the attorney he hired. And that's what the guys were all speculating. He said, yeah, at the time, since he hired this attorney, that that side of the family was siding with Dave Ayers. Well, they felt like what was being said in the police department that you were, that Greg was like leaking it to him or some shit like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. I go, you know, you know, it's just one of the, it was an itch that I had to scratch. I just remember the way the guys were talking was that the detectives came in and like I was at work and they came in and they're like, hey, Graham, we got to talk to you in confidential. And I'm like, oh, OK, what's going on? And then after and they said, oh, you can't talk about this to anybody. And they were asking me questions about Dave Ayers. And, like, and I go, why? Well, I, I go, he's a lieutenant. I mean, he works like days and second. I go, I haven't worked with him in like a couple of years, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember they were asking me questions about you know, calls he'd handled or calls I'd been on him with like two, three, four years prior. And I thought like, and it kind of like was one of the things when I walked out, I was like, oh, I wonder what Dave did because they're kind of like on a fishing expedition trying to find something he did wrong. Well, then when I started mentioning the other guys, they were all like, yeah, all here within the last couple of days, they've been interviewing everybody. And then all of a sudden it was like two days later, it was, you know, the the notice was put on the bulletin board that Dave Ayers is on administrative leave pending internal investigation. You know, uh, he, you know, has no authority or anything to, you know, in the police department to come in, you know, to be in the records room, to be in the locker room, you know, nothing, not to have access to any departmental property or personnel or anything like that. And we're like, oh shit, okay, yep, he's in trouble for something, you know, but. You know, that was just kind of the rumor was, okay, and then everything, like the guys were saying that after that, over the next months, that, you know, few months leading up to his hearing at the Police and Fire Commission, that they were investigating him or trying to find something, and supposedly it was because, or allegedly because him months before, however long before, he'd been interviewed with the FBI for something that involved Elam and the city is what they, you know, is what they were all saying they thought the, the rumor was. And the, and the thing is, is then as we were talking, I was telling them about, you know, you know, the, some of the questions you're asked about gold, just trying to get, you know, people's perspective with all that happened and everything. Well, then one of the guys brought up that about the evidence locker. And I go, well, I go, that's, I go, I'm sure they have copies of all the case you know, all the under public information act, all of that. Right. And he, and I just remember like Gerald was saying, he goes, why well, remember time? He goes, you know, everybody was thinking cause they thought it had something to do with that anonymous letter or something. And he goes like, he goes, there was something in there about evidence coming up missing from the evidence locker. And I go, really? I go, cause the thing, the only thing that stuck out in my head, I remember looking at that piece of paper that that guy and that lady was like putting on windshields and I was stop stop sign and they were walking across the street in front of me. And I go, hey, what do you got, coupons for something? I go, I want a discount. Is it for food? You know, kind of making a joke. And they go, here, you can have one. And they handed one to me. And I kind of looked at it. And 
the cars that I was waiting to go went by, and then I just stuffed it down in between my equipment bag and the seat and drove on. And then later on, I remember looking at it and glancing through it. But the one that stuck out in my mind was something like at the old police station, when the fire department police station was in the old building that where I pay the state bank is, I think it's like first and pine. There used to be an old two-story police or fire department, police department there. And I remember there was something in there about some guy had died in the holding cell. And so they like put him on top of the furnace to warm up his body so that when the coroner got there, it looked like he just died or something like that. Because I remember seeing that and I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like, you know, and I remember like just kind of glancing through it and seeing that. And I'm like, what the hell? And I, and I remember, you know, like, why the hell would they, you know, somebody died in a holding cell back then that was probably, you know, one of them, that, you know, I'm like, okay, if somebody dies in our holding cell, you call an ambulance, they take him to the hospital, you call a coroner, the state police investigates it. And then I thought, why, you know, I just remember kind of thinking, okay, you know, that's a bad thing to happen, but, you know, that with people using drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things, that's something that you're trained that could possibly happen and what you're supposed to do if that happens. So that was in this flyer that these this man and woman were passing out? Yeah, and that's what I remember. That's about the only thing I remember. Something about a guy in a holding cell, you know, something found dead in a holding cell, so they put him on the furnace to warm up his body before they called, like, the coroner or the detectives or whatever they did back then. And I just remember kind of looking at it like, what the hell? Why? Uh, you know. So what was the purpose of this flyer or this information that they were passing out? Yeah, see, that's the thing. At the time, what sticks out in my mind, I remember like going into the station and Zimmerman was a lieutenant and he was in the station. And the dispatch, I was in there typing up a report on the computer and dispatch said, you know, had buzzed back into the, we called it the squad room where we had the computers type up a report. Mm-hmm. And Zimmerman was in there and dispatch goes, hey, she goes, hey, we're getting several calls about somebody going around putting flyers on cars around the square and stuff. She goes, what do you want me to tell them? And I remember Zimmerman was like, well, it's, unless they're damaging the cars, that's not illegal. And... I said, and I heard that, and I kind of perked up, and I go, oh, hey, is that like that list of things bashing the police department? And the dispatcher was, because, you know, we were on the intercom, and she goes, I don't, they're not telling me what it said, just said that bunch, or we've had several calls on it. And Randy goes, what is it? And I go, oh, I go, I have one out in the car. It's like a list of, uh, like, basically bashing how bad the police department is. And I remember, like, Randy and me were kind of like, oh, well, I wonder who got arrested and hates us now, you know, and that's, and I don't remember if I threw it away or, yeah. you know, I did, it was just kind of like that, just one of those things. So was that like the lead up to the Elam? Um... Oh yeah, that was like months before uh, the whole thing with, you know, Elam, uh, before everything, all the rumors and everything, department and, you know, long, it, I mean, it was weeks or months before you know, then we were being interviewed about Dave Ayers and him being put on administrative leave and stuff like that. So do you think that was related, the flyer and the um, anonymous letter? Yeah, and the reason why I think it, it is related 
is because I can remember one morning uh, after this was like after Dave had been put on administrative leave while um, while they he, they were doing the investigation into him. Mm-hmm. And I remember one morning I was back in the, the locker room putting my equipment bag in my locker and Elam came in because usually he came in about seven thirty, eight o'clock and shift change was in between 6.37. And I remember he came into the locker room and he looked over at me and I looked up and I go, oh, hey, Chief, you're here early. And he goes, well, he goes, I want to talk to you, Rusty. And I go, oh, OK. And he kind of just motioned me to come out in the hallway. So I went out in the hallway and he goes, Hey, he goes, um, do you remember anything about uh, somebody up on the square handing out flyers and putting them on cars? And I was, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, like within the last few days, and I was like, what? I go, flyers. I go, no. And he goes, well, I was told that, you know, uh, a few months ago that when you, you were working second shift, and these flyers were putting on and somebody gave it to you and it was kind of derogatory towards me or the police department. And I remember it clicked and I go, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, do you know who that was that gave it to you or who was putting them up there? And I was just kind of like, no, it was a man and a lady. And I go, they were, I saw they had some in their hand and I seen, you know, actually the guy was standing there and the lady is putting them under windshield wipers. And I pulled up to the stop sign and then they walked across the street in front of me. And I was thinking, you know, because some businesses do that for coupons. And I go, I was just saying, I told him the story and he goes, but you didn't know who they were. And I go, no, no. And he goes, okay. And I remember then he's like, well, if you saw him again, do you think you'd recognize him? And I go, I don't, I don't think so. I go, didn't I? And I remember thinking like, why? What's then? He goes, oh, I was just curious, but I just wanted to ask you about that. And I go, okay. And then I, you know, went on, it was shift change and I went home and it just, one of those weird conversations that kind of sticks out in your mind, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then after, you know, when I was talking to Gerald and Ryan and them guys, I was just kind of like, you know, I, I go, that kind of, yeah, I remember that. It was just kind of weird because, I mean, it wasn't weird the chief coming in early i mean him pulling me out the hallway and asking about it is what yeah like huh to me like when if you're interviewing people and all you have is witnesses statements I, i always take those as you know always in the back of my mind i'm like okay there's their story the suspect story and somewhere in the middle is the truth Right. And it's, uh, I always, all the cases I worked with witness statements, I kind of use them as a guide. But if I didn't have like some good physical evidence to back it up, I was always hesitant to, you know, in some cases that's all you have. And if it's, you know, like a misdemeanor or petty offense, you write them out a ticket, give them those peer and say, okay, you know, you know, dude, I got, you know, I got a supervisor too. I got to do my job and let them fight it out in court. But when it comes to somebody who could be spending their life in jail or being getting like the death penalty, somebody could get life in prison or the death penalty all based on witness statements with minimum or no physical evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, that just boggles my mind that that happens.
you're going to put somebody, I mean, you hope and you do the best job you can to, even if you're just locking somebody up for three months, a year, or five years or 10 years. But to me, I'm like, if you, if somebody's going to get life in prison or death penalty, you need to be 100% positive, you know, with the, with the physical evidence, the witness statements. I mean, to me, I'm like, when it comes to that point, there is no, okay, we might have a, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt to convict the person, but we need 100% no doubt if they're going to get life in prison or the death penalty. That's the way I look at it. I just remember those state troopers. It was well, I state troopers. I mean, they were from the state police criminal investigation. I just remember them showing up, saying, "Hey, you know," and they were asking questions about. I, I just remember, like, it was they were going back like months in like a cup, two, three years or whatever. And I remember thinking, walking out of there after like ten, fifteen minutes, talk to them, like, "Wow, yeah, they're on a fishing expedition trying to find right. something there's but like that, they told us, hey, you can't talk about it. And I'm like, nope, I understand, you know. Yeah, no, after the conversation last night, like I was talking to a couple of my daughters, and then it just kept, I'm like, you know, just one of those itches that I had to scratch. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention for one moment as I introduce Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror, the motive of this cross-country killing spree at its heart, storytelling. And though this horrid crime is true, the story was birthed by imagination, as those people, the players involved, created their own characters and then took to the road to not only discover, but rain down upon their preferred setting. Then, through one unspeakable vile act after another, these characters wrote a story, an adventure only these characters could have dreamt of. Set free in a world where destiny quickly took one expected turn after the next, an absorbing tale of two individuals whose paths seemed destined never to cross, yet had. Meet 18-year-old honor student Lisa Dunn, whose seemingly idyllic life and background were undoubtedly worlds apart from 28-year-old self-proclaimed bad boy Daniel Eugene Remetta, a product of a turbulent, neglectful, and abusive upbringing, who found himself on a collision course with the criminal underworld from a young age. Growing up in the shadow of alcoholism, a childhood marked by habitual encounters with law enforcement, Danny's life was marred by violence and chaos from the start. In stark contrast, Lisa Dunn's life was on a trajectory toward college and a promising future. Until shortly before their fateful meeting, she embodied a well-cared-for, academically successful teenager from a loving and well-to-do middle-class home. But then, suddenly her grades slipped. She experimented with drugs and even ran away from home to Florida, signaling her growing discomfort with the life that had been assigned to her. And when Lisa and Danny's past crossed, it was at that crossroads, that crosshair in life, that caused an abrupt turn into not only uncharted territory, but terror. 
At Radio Verite, we aim to unravel this captivating tale of how these two vastly different individuals came together. We will deeply explore the intricate dynamics that led to a cross-country, multi-state killing spree, one marked and dog-eared for all time by early-onset mass murder, in a time of social change just at that dawn when murderous violence would spill out across the nation. As we delve into the narrative, we'll grapple with the haunting question, who was manipulating who? Who transitioned into an active accomplice? And with the complex interplay of Danny and Lisa's conflicting backgrounds and terrible choices, along with the influence of consequential figures like former altar boy turned cold-blooded killer, tag-along Mark Walter, and hitchhiking Vietnam vet J.C. Catfish Hunter, just what sociopathic crimes would transpire. Follow along with Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, as we present a compelling true crime road saga that will challenge your understanding of human capacity for both darkness and redemption. Coming February 2024, wherever you get your podcasts. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.